Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning. You know, I know you know this, but I will remind you that there's something wonderful and unique that happens when God's people gather. And when we come together, I know you've been living out in the world all week, walking with God and living for Him and trying to serve Him. And God dwells in Him, in you, and you take Him wherever you go because He's with you. But when we come together as God's people and when with one voice we glorify Him and we say and we sing what we believe, we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. When we worship in spirit and in truth, the demons tremble, and they indeed do. So you are taking part in a great calling this morning in worshiping together with the saints, and I commend you for that. We are going to continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Before we stand and read, uh, give you a moment to, to sit down and we will pray. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn there and just wait for a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we have as your children, as your creatures, declared that you are our God and King, and that you have made us and created us. And we have said that we believe in you and your Son and your Spirit. We tell of your glory this morning. For great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But you, O Lord, made the heavens... Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. And we thank you that we have come together as those who are indwelt with your spirit to sing praises to the name of Christ, our God and our Savior, and to receive from you that which we need this morning. We need, we need food. We need to be fed by the bread of heaven. We need to declare your lordship in in the Word of God, in our lives, in communion together. And so we invite you to do the work that you will in our hearts and minds and our lives this morning as we turn to you and we turn to your Word. These things we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We are going to read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, it's just 13 verses. We're not going to look at all... 13 verses this morning, but we're going to read them because they go together. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, I hope you will. And would you stand as we read God's Word? And we do this because Paul said, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And we believe, obviously, that God is speaking in His Word. I have some things to say about it, but what He says, first and foremost, is most important. So please give attention to the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge... Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, 
the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I've titled uh, the message this morning, Idle Speculation. And when we talk about idle speculation, we spell the word I-D-L-E. But it basically means uh, speculating about something, but it's not really true. It doesn't turn out to be true. And the Corinthians have their own speculations about idols. And it turns out they're wrong. Paul is going to convince them about idol speculation as we go along. And and, um, we will uh, reveal what Paul has to say. Um, There are a couple of different interpretations of this passage. And one that is probably most common is the interpretation that this passage has to do with what is often called doubtful things. Doubtful things are those things that the, the Bible has not strictly spoken to, has not really said anything about. And so, in general, Christians, we're, we're given freedom, we have liberty, and so we must be careful that we do not use that freedom, that liberty, to cause another brother or sister to stumble by violation of their personal convictions on a certain matter. And that is one of the ways that this is oftentimes interpreted. This passage is about liberty. In fact, Paul is, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. He starts in 8, chapter 8, verse 1, and he ends the argument in chapter 11, verse 1. We have to keep that entire context in mind as we go along. But when people can uh, interpret this as doubtful matters, they apply it to issues, often many of which are from a bygone era of American Christianity of legalism. For example, they apply it to things like um, issues of alcohol. The Bible says you should not be drunk, but is social drinking okay? Um, It used to be, some of you were uh, raised this way, you don't go to movies because you're a Christian, right? Christians don't go to movies. Uh, You don't dance, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do, that kind of thing. Dancing is one of those. There are some Christians, they just, that's the way they were raised. You do not dance as a Christian. That's not not part of the Christian faith. Um, Women wearing pants. Women are are to wear uh, uh, dresses and they're not to wear pants. There are all these things, many of which are of a bygone era, as I said, and, and it's, I think it's great that the church has cast off its legalism, but there's always the danger of casting off legalism and embracing license and going too far with our freedoms. But is that what Paul is talking about here? The new battlegrounds, of course, in the area of doubtful things are, are you wearing a mask or are you not wearing a mask? Do you homeschool your children? Do you send your, your kids to public school? These are matters that the Bible has not specifically said anything about wearing masks. The Bible has not said anything specifically about public schools. We might derive principles elsewhere, but when it comes down to it, we have to be careful that we recognize that God has not spoken on certain things. And in each of these, each person must have their own set of convictions. But... This is often then um, compared to the book of Romans in chapter 14 and 15, where that is speaking of doubtful things. And the issue there in Romans 14 was um, uh, eating uh, Hebrew, t- keeping Hebrew dietary regulations. And you have many Christians who are pagans, that is, former pagans, Gentiles who came in, and the, the Jews wanted the new Christians to, to eat kosher. And the Christians who were Jewish, they had a hard time eating bacon-wrapped shrimp. To them, it was detestable. the, The very thought of it would make them gag. They were raised their whole life. You don't eat that kind of stuff. It is wrong. It's part of the law. And my sense of of consciousness of this matter, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about eating a pulled pork sandwich. I can't do it. 
And so in Romans 14 and 15, Paul talks about the strong and the weak. He does not deal with the strong in, in 1 Corinthians 10 through uh, 8 through 10, but he does deal with the weak. But in Romans, back to there for a moment, the strong in which Paul would squarely put himself in that camp are those because God has made all things clean. It's okay to put cheese on your hamburger. It's okay to have shrimp fried shrimp and and bacon. You can do that because God has made all things. Remember Peter, when he was up on his roof praying and the sheet came down and the Lord said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, Oh, I can't do that. It's detestable to me. I can't even think of such a thing. And the message to Peter was, Christ has made all things clean and all foods clean. And the implication was, he is welcoming the Gentiles into the faith. And so the strong were those who recognized, yeah, I I was raised that way, but now I'm free. In fact, I like bacon. I kind of of have acquired a taste for it. So it's okay for me to eat those things. And on the other hand, you have the weak that, "Ah, I just cannot bring myself to do that. What What would grandma say? I would disappoint my mom. It was just it's so much part of my, my being and my psyche to eat those detestable things. And Paul says, fine. If that is what in your conscience, your consciousness rather, and we'll talk about conscience next week, probably not like what we think of it, but in your way of thinking, you have determined that you cannot eat bacon or pork. If you can't do that out of faith, you better not do that. Because if you do, it's you're sinning. But just don't impose that upon others. And to the strong, he says, yes, you're free. You can eat whatever you want. But just don't make someone else eat bacon-wrapped shrimp and cause them to sin because they have this conviction in their life that they should not do that and they shouldn't do that. So... That is often the way this passage is interpreted, that meat sacrificed to idols is the same thing. However, think about it for a minute. Think about what is happening in Corinth. What rises in our culture to the level of eating meat sacrificed to a false god? I've been thinking about that all week, and it's really hard to, to, to think about what is the direct correlation in our culture today. This is a Christian community, Spokane is. This is a Christian country, quote-unquote. And many of you say, no, it's not. It used to be. You know what I mean. We live in the year of our Lord, 2022. In our, in our community, we have people that, are from, that, that go to many different churches. Some are Catholic, some are Mormon, some are Baptist, some are Presbyterian and Lutheran, Bible church people. We have a group of people that consider themselves other, agnostic and atheist, perhaps. But you know what? Most of those people have had some sort of connection with religion, as we know it in the United States, in some form of Christianity, whether it's... Uh, Mormonism or Seventh-day Adventism or whatever may be, the cults even. But in this room, I don't think there is, I'm not going out on a limb to, the, to say that there isn't any one of you that grew up, grew up going into the temple of a foreign god, killing animals to some idol and eating them. Anybody? It's hard for us to understand that. I mean, when we think about it and put it that way, we go, ooh, now that is detestable to think that that might be my background, but it is not for any of us. So unless you grew up in a third world country where it was a a common practice, and it still is, and, and missionaries experience that today, and there is a cultural equivalent there, but here, maybe once in a while, voodoo people, voodoo, you know, killing a chicken or... Um, We hear about Satanists making sacrifices, but those are just on the periphery. This is not something that's part of our culture, but it was theirs. It was an everyday part of their culture. So it's hard for us 
to think about this. And that's why it's so easy to think, well, it's just meat sacrificed to idols. It's kind of like offering someone a, you know, a beer and, a, and offending them or going to an R-rated movie. No, this is, this, this is, there's more at play here. And that's what Paul is going to get here. What is behind this? What is really at play? So we're going to see, um, we're not going to look at all 13 verses this morning. We're going to look into uh, verses 7 through 13 next week. But we're going to see Paul begins to build a couple of premises, some important principles to make his case, whatever that case is, and we'll see what it is. So in verses 1 through 3, with regard to idle food, by the way, the words meat sacrificed to idols is one word, so I'm calling it idle food here, idle meat. With regard to this, true faith corresponds with the true love for God and for others. True faith in God will correspond to a real love for God and a love for others. What does that have to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Well, that's how Paul begins concerning things sacrificed to idols. You need to love God and you need to love others. That is the starting point because it is not loving to cause another person to sin in any area and particularly this one. So, faith corresponds to a true love for God and others. Now, Paul says, um, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, remember last week we saw now concerning virgins or the betrothed. Before that, it was now concerning the things you wrote to me. Paul had taught them 18 months. Paul had written them a letter. They have written back about some of these things, and this is one of the questions that they have. They have their answer... They have made their own decision. They have their own opinion. But they're going to say, they're saying to Paul, so what do you think? We've made our decision. What is the answer? Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Is it okay to do that? Now, we're going to have to look at chapters 8 through 10. And we're not going to do it this morning. Next week, we're going to peek into chapter 10 to find out Paul specifically dealing with the question. But we're just, because it's important to do that, if you just look at chapter 8, and you look at that uh, in isolation to the rest of the context, that's where you come up with a, uh, an interpretation that, well, he's just talking about the freedom to do all sorts of things, like, uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, um, cause your brother to stumble with alcohol or going to R-rated movies or whatever it may be. There's much more at play here than that. So we're going to peek ahead so that we don't misinterpret But I want us to to look at those two premises in verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 6, the the, the principles that he's building. And I think just by looking at those alone, we will see what Paul's answer to this is. And so, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, as I said, this was commonplace everywhere in the area of the New Testament. Not just Corinth, not just Galatia, even in, in Israel itself. There were temples everywhere. This was a common practice everywhere. And he is describing uh, to them a problem that was common throughout the New Testament church. In fact, uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, had to do with these kinds of things, and we'll come to that a little bit later. But it was practiced everywhere in the regions of the New Testament. You had these temples in Corinth and everywhere to Athena, Apollos, Asclepius, Serapis, Demeter, Isis, Aphrodite. And the Aphrodite temple, which uh, the time of, of Paul was, was in ruins, but before that was where the, the temple prostitutes were. And so the idea would be that all of these pagans, and by the way, wherever there is a counterfeit, there is always a truth. And the truth is that even in Israel they made animal sacrifices and was very similar. And so the pagan practices were very similar to the truth. A worshiper would go to the pagan temple and they would have, bring with them an animal and the priest would kill the animal, cut it up in pieces. Part of the animal would be burned on an altar. Part of the, the, the remainder would go to the, uh, the priests and they could eat that. And the remaining portion belonged to the worshiper. And two things were done with that. Sometimes they had a meal right there in the temple. In fact, uh, 
um, archaeology and writings of the time have discovered that the temple of Asclepius, there was uh, in that temple dining rooms. They were almost like restaurants or cafes. And people could go in there and they could eat meat, sacrificed idols. But once you, you went through your worship service of offering this animal to be killed and burned up and cut up, then you would have a fellowship meal with your friends and family in these dining rooms. And that's what he's talking about. Some of this meat, however, would make its way to the meat market, or people would take it home with them. And that's another matter that he's going to address in chapter 10, but we're not going to look there just yet. But the real question is, is it okay? This this idol, pagan, temple, meat, this animal was put to death in the name of this foreign god? And then, is it okay for the Christian to eat of this? Well, let's see. Now concerning things, sacrifice idols, he says. And now, now he quotes the Corinthians. We know that we all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. He's basically stating a fact here that the, the Corinthians are saying, we know what we know about this sub- subject And we know all that there is to know about it. This is what they are saying. We know we all have knowledge. And for them, the answer is yes. It's okay for us to do that. And he's going to be interacting with their words. But he takes it, he doesn't just say, give them an answer. He he takes a different tact. He says this knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Arrogant is a word that Paul has used several times in this book, and he has charged them with being arrogant, and he wasn't shy about saying so. And the word means to be filled up with a a sense of self-importance. In other words, to be puffed up. Knowledge puffs up, he says, but love edifies. Edification is always about the church. He's not talking about loving God and edifying Him. We don't edify God. We don't build up God. We always build up others. And so what does this have to do with eating meat, sacrificed to idols? He's getting right to the nub of it, right up front. You think you know, but knowledge, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. But love is the thing that will control your decisions. So... The more knowledge you have, the greater the temptation to pride. Isn't that true? I mean, you, you may know a lot about engineering. You may know a lot about music. You may know a lot about uh, uh, theology. And, and there is that temp- temptation to become what? I know it all. I know it all. You don't, need to, don't tell me anything about that because I know what this is. And there is a temptation in, a, in, a, in acquiring knowledge to become a know-it-all, to become pride in your, proud in your knowledge. And that's a simple truth that he's saying to them. But he's applying it to their knowledge of eating meat sacrificed to, to, to idols. He's basically going, going, going to tell them, you don't know what you think you know. By the way, he's not disparaging knowledge in any way. Remember how he began the book of 1 Corinthians? He said, I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge. He praises them for their knowledge. But here he says, this knowledge that you have about eating meat sacrificed to idols, you have become proud in this and that you are in error. Later Paul would say, study to show yourself approved. The proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Second Timothy 3, 7, there are some in this age where he says they're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just because you have knowledge doesn't mean that you have the truth. So Paul isn't in any way disparaging knowledge. What he's saying is knowledge tempts us to sin, but love always trumps knowledge. He's going to say later in chapter 13, and you know the love chapter, he will say, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. All prophecy plus all mysteries plus all knowledge plus all faith minus love equals zero. That's God's divine math. It's different from what we would think. You can have all that stuff. And he's not talking about just the lovey-dovey, all-you-need-is-love kind of thing. Agape love is that decision to adopt an attitude where you treat and, and behave toward others always in their best interest. It is always sacrificial. It is part of our love of God. And love trumps knowledge. He's not saying, like many people, I remember when I first became a Christian, people would, would quote this verse, Love, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So you're not supposed to be studying. You don't need to be studying the Bible all the time. It's just, you know, be charismatic and, and just love people. And, and all you need is love. You need both. We need both. Edification is part of love. We are, the, the pastors and teachers are to uh, prepare the the saints for the ministry of the word to the building up of the body of christ romans 15 each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification it's the purpose of the church is to build one another up and it is love what does god use to build the church he uses love but he also uses the knowledge of god's word and he uses the ministry of god's gifts people's gifts So edification is a huge part of what we do. But he says in verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. The pride, the arrogance of knowledge deceives us into thinking we know more than we do. Put it this way, when we think we know all there is, we don't. When we think we know all that there is, we don't. So that's why he says, anyone supposes that he knows anything, he doesn't know. There is no way that you can know everything about anything, right? And he's not disparaging convictions here, by the way. We should have convictions that we are willing to die for. I am willing to die for the inspiration and authority of Scripture. I am willing to die for the deity of Christ. I am willing to die for the substitutionary atonement. But do I know everything about the substitutionary atonement? Do I know everything about the deity of Christ? Do I know everything about the inspiration and authority of Scripture? No. And anyone who claims that they do is proud. And that's what he's saying. You think you know all there is to know about eating meat, sacrifice to idols. You don't know the whole story is what he's saying. You do not know all that there is to know. So in verse 3, but, in contrast to that, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It's interesting, when, when I first started studying this, it seems like this is backwards. Since he's talking about knowledge, you'd think he would say, if anyone knows God, he is loved by him. But no, the key is on God knowing you. He knew me in my mother's womb and you, and he knew you before the foundation of the world. But now you have come to know God, Paul said in Galatians, or rather to be known by him. He's talking about salvation. This is knowledge in the salvific sense. God knows you. And what is the demonstration or the corresponding truth to God knowing you? What is the proof that he knows you? Your love of him. That you love him. And love is never devoid of knowledge and is always related to obedience. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments, and you need to know them, by the way, and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And we know a new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples because you wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it. 
or your car is parked at 3021 South Sullivan Road. No, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The proof of your faith, the proof of your discipleship, the true, the the proof that you know him is that you love him and you love others. The, the man who came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Christianity. So we must love as we have been loved. And a proper knowledge of God engenders humility and love. And a proper knowledge of God engenders that. It keeps us on the straight and narrow. So we see we are to love God and we are to love others. That's an indication of our faith in Christ. But how does that relate to eating meat sacrificed to idols? If we love God, we will demonstrate that love by the way that we treat others in Christ. And we will never lead someone into sin to do that which they have decided that they cannot do. That is not a loving thing. Obviously, we saw that from verses 7 through 13. So, with regards to this idle food with regard to meat sacrificed to idols, the true faith corresponds with a true love for God and a true love for others. And now verses 4 through 6, concerning this idol food, concerning meat sacrificed to idols, true worship corresponds with a true understanding of our Creator, If we are going to understand what it means to eat meat sacrificed to idols, we need to understand what idols are, but we also need to understand who God is. Just who is He? How important is it to worship Him? How how important is it to to consider the idea of uh, you know how what rises to this level in our culture? Killing an animal on an altar before a a false god, what is like that? We need to know about God himself. So he says in verse 4, Therefore concerning things, sacrifice to idols, he says it again, comes back to the the topic. And there, here again, he quotes the Corinthians, and in this case, I think he, he agrees with them. He says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. This is what the Corinthians are saying. Well, look, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Their first argument was we have all knowledge. The second is idols are nothing and there's only one God. So what's the problem? It's not a big deal. Paul would agree with this at face value. Idols are nothing and there's only one God but are you really thinking about what that means in this situation? God is real, idols are not. Right? God is real and idols are not. And that's basically what they're saying here. There is no such thing as an idol in the world. Now, he's not saying that they don't exist, because in verse 5 he says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. There are many, there are many things that people see as gods and lords, and we have many of these so-called gods. People make idols to the sun, to the moon, to the stars, creeping things, grasshoppers, fish in the sea, birds, human beings, and they make all sorts of idols And Paul is saying, and they agree with this, they're just nothing. They don't mean anything. There's no reality. There's no other God behind them because there's no God but one. They believe that. There is only one true God. Only one true God. And they would believe that. And Paul believed that. And I love the way that in the Old Testament, sometimes these... um, 
idols are, are oftentimes mocked in the worship of idols. In Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. How can you be afraid of something that doesn't, can't speak or see or feel or walk or stand up, has to be carried, then made by a man? And those who worship them become like them. What do they become like? Deaf and dumb and dead. If that is the God you worship, because you become like that which you worship. So, it's no small thing to think about these idols. In Isaiah chapter 40, I love Isaiah chapter 40 and through the end of the book, but I love the whole book. Anyway, uh, if you wanted to see there is only one God, read Isaiah 40 through 50. There is only one God. And the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That is the declaration of Judaism as a monotheistic faith. There is only one God, and that is the central tenet of Judaism right there. It's the starting point, and the starting point for us. And the next thing it says in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength. Him and Him alone. And Isaiah then, you have these... Uh, description of I love in Isaiah 40 a man chooses a piece of wood and he he gravens he he makes an an idol for himself and he makes it just so that it doesn't totter you wouldn't want it to fall over now would you and later in chapter 44 he talks about the, the craftsman he takes a piece of wood and part of that wood he makes a fire and keeps himself warm and part of the wood he cooks his dinner and the other part of the wood he fashions an idol and bows down before it and says you are my God what's how silly is that And so you can see why the Corinthians would say, there's nothing behind this. It's not a big deal. But there is a problem. Idolatry was widespread then because he says there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth. Everywhere they went, there was the idolatry of these many gods and lords. But there is only one God. The world is full of idolatry. But worship of the one true God categorically excludes idolatry, does it not? God's very existence and calling us to know Him excludes any kind of idolatry. So he says in verse 6, and we'll put it up on the screen, because some think this is an, an early creed, like we sang the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. I believe in the three in one. And look at it. You can see its, uh, its symmetry and its beauty. Yet for us, there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things and we for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we through Him. Notice he has said that there is one God and there is only one God. But then he talks about the deity of Christ. God the Father and God the Son. This is like John, in the the book of John, how Jesus was always talking about his relationship to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he is the creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ is. Colossians tells us all things were created by him and for him and through him. And in him we have our existence. We are creatures of our God and King. We live for him. We live through him. And think about the idolatry in the Old Testament. How did the whole thing begin? 
God created the heavens and the earth and everything was pure. Adam and Eve in the garden was a place of sanctuary and fellowship and worship. And the enemy comes in and says, you can do better. There's more to the story. You can become like God. And so they ate. And what happened after that? After they were kicked out of the garden throughout all of recorded history, you have the reality of the truth, of the worship of the true God, but all of the counterfeits, making idols of the sun and the moon and the stars and animals and human beings, and the people are worshiping these things and falling down before them, and it is detestable to God. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Step one. Step one to believing in the one true creator God. No other gods. No graven images. And what did Israel do? Even when Moses was coming down from the mountain with that first word, no other gods, what had they done? They had made a God. The people rose up to play, which is a euphemism for immorality. And throughout all of recorded history, you see false worship always goes hand in hand with immorality. Always. Even today. But back then, the Baal worship and the temple prostitutes and in the time of uh, Christ and the time of uh, the Corinthians, that's why he had to address the whole idea to the Corinthians. Is it okay for us to keep going to prostitutes? No. What are you thinking? Of course you can't do that. Yes, it was part of our, our worship and the way we just grew up doing that stuff. No. It's theologically incorrect. It's ethically wrong. We get to the Jerusalem Council, and again, many people say, well, this is, you know, 1 Corinthians 8 is dealing with things that God has not spoken to. The, the, the Jerusalem Council was the, these, you had these believers uh, Gentile believers that were coming into the church and some were saying, well, they need to be circumcised and they need to keep the law of Moses. And so the whole council comes together with a thus say of the Lord. And it says, here's the bottom line. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Revelation. Jesus, speaking to the church at Pergamum, says, But I have a few things against you, because you have, you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. They're still around who've kept the teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. They always go hand in hand. So knowing this, I ask the question, without peeking forward into chapter 10, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in a temple, to kill an animal Sacrifice to a false god, is it okay to do that? What do you think? The answer is no. It's no more right to do that than it is to continue to go to prostitutes, by Paul's reasoning. We get to, next week, we'll dip into chapter 10, and you'll see it's a, pretty, it's a slam dunk. So the conclusion is this. Beware of modern-day idols... They are about us. We have a hard time thinking about um, what rises to the level of this whole idea of uh, killing animals in pagan temples in our society. We have a hard time thinking about it. But there are still idols that we make in our life. In First John chapter 2, John said, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Who's the God of this world? The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And you know how Paul, uh, John finishes the book? With these very simple words, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The things that we often think of as modern day idols, money, sex, success, a job, hobbies, phones, computers, fitness, patriotism. What occupies your thoughts? What you serve, you worship, and what you worship, you serve. What you love, you will serve. What you love, you will worship. And what you, what you serve, you worship. And what you worship, you will serve. And that can be true of anything. If, you're, if your mind is occupied with money, if your mind and your emotions and your affections and your energies and your priorities are directed toward anything... Above God, it has become an idol in your life. It can be. So think about that for yourself. It's it's a difficult thing. I know I I love to run. Um, I love to cook. I love to fish. There are a lot of things that I love. I love my grandkids. But any one of those things, if I serve them above God, if they're more important to me than God and worship of the true living God, then it can become an idol. But these are not religious in nature, are they? That's why it's so hard for us to consider what, what is similar to offering, eating meat that has been offered to a sacri- as a sacrifice to a false god. Here's one example. I'm not saying the only one. Because there are people in our society who approach this with a religious fervor and allegiance and a devotion that is religious. Like even there are some that are atheists and agnostics. But there is one, I think, that rises almost, and it is spelled this way, LGBTQ. It has become a religion. It is a cult. It has its priests and priestess. It has its dogma and its first order of business, its first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. You are God. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want personal autonomy to do whatever you want. It's not just part of the LGBTQ thing. It's part of our culture in a sense. Wherever there is the reality of true worship, there is always going to be a counterfeit, and it exists in our, in our society. And we could use LGBTQ plus as an example. It has its sacrament, which is abortion and now the mutilation of children. It has its dogma, its teaching. And if you do not think that way, believe that way, talk that way, act that way, you are excommunicated from the place of fellowship and worship. And it even has a symbol like the cross. And it's unfortunate because pride is a sin and the rainbow belongs to us. But for many people, maybe some of you, where you work and the government, businesses, force people to give tacit admission and acknowledgement that, that this is a good thing. We wouldn't force anyone to wear a cross, would we? But many are forced in this new religion. And it goes beyond just that, I understand. But if you love God, you will worship Him to the exclusion of all idols, and you will love others as yourself. That's the bottom line. If you love God, you will worship Him to the exclusion of all idols, and you will love others as yourself. There is only one God, 
only one Son of God. And that's how we know God is through His Son. I encourage you this week to think about your life and about idols. Help me too. Um, I'm pondering and thinking about what are the religions of our culture. What are the things that rise up to eating meat sacrificed to idols in a religious sense? Next week we'll talk more about it. And if you have ideas, I'd love to hear them as we study this together. As we close, I'd like you to take your uh, communion elements and open them and prepare the bread and the cup. The apostle said in chapter 10, and next week we're going to say, show how he used the communion as an argument about eating meat sacrificed to idols. But he said this, isn't the cup which we share together, isn't this a sharing in Christ's blood? Yes, it is. The bread which we take together, isn't this a sharing in the body of Christ? And indeed it is. We who have trusted Christ as our Savior, He lives in us. And when we partake of communion, we are saying we are in fellowship with one another. And that's what the word sharing is, koinonia. So, if you know Christ as Savior, if He is your Lord, if He is your God, if you have bowed the knee to Him, I invite you to the table as we declare the Lord's death in view of His soon return. So take a moment and consider idolatry. Consider your relationship with Him and let's partake in a worthy manner. Father, we are sorry and we confess to you that there are things that have captured our affections, our time, our energy, our priorities that are not worthy, things that are passing away and we are weak, we're just dust and we're caught up in the day-to-day and we know that that's no excuse but would you renew our hearts and our love of you and love of one another. Give us sharp eyes to see the ways in which we bow to things that are unworthy of our time. Give us the ability to see, Lord God, that you alone are Lord. Help us to balance properly living in this world, but putting you above all things. And help us to see what rises to the level of eating meat sacrificed to idols. That we might live our lives in all purity before you. So we partake of this bread and this cup together in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.